All right, everyone, if you would um, open your Bibles or just look at the scripture passages before you, we're, we're looking at um, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 this morning, and we're continuing on in our new sum, uh, false, I said summer, fall servant series, and the series is titled Saved For Dot, 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 um, and in this series, we investigate some of the ways in which we're not just saved from things. God just doesn't save us from things like our guilt and our shame uh, and our sin. But God in Christ saves us for certain realities. Now, this sermon this morning might seem a bit somber, perhaps a little bit macabre, you know. Um, and if it's your first time here, you're probably, probably thinking, wow, they always talk about these things. Um, well, it is uh, a topic that cause for some sobriety. What we're going to see this morning is that God saves us in Christ for a cruciform life. That is, as Christ's life was lived under the weight of the cross, so too all who are his followers. We have been saved for a cruciform life. Now, before we read our passage, it might be good to get a little context, right? It's just in the middle of Luke, like what's going on? Well, Jesus had been out with his disciples doing all kinds of wonderful ministry. Now he gathers the 12 back in um, and he asks them, he says, who do all these crowds, who do they say I am? And the disciples responded, well, some think you're John the Baptist. He died a little while ago and now you're him again. Uh, Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're just some other prophet of old. Everybody's getting Jesus' identity wrong. Then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And then Peter speaks up and he says this wonderful confession, great truth. He says, you're the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah of God. The disciples get Jesus's identity right. But understand this. They've been walking with Jesus for almost three years. They finally get his identity right. The problem is they failed to grasp his mission. Why did he come? And so immediately Jesus describes his work. He says, I'm not going to be the Messiah like you all are expecting. He's, he wasn't going to work his way up the ladder to an earthly throne. No, he is going to humble himself and be rejected by the earthly powers and be killed and then be raised from the dead. What? This cannot be thought the disciples. And then comes our little passage here. That's the context. And in our passage, Jesus lays upon these disciples and us the mother load. He says, not only am I going to carry a cross, so too all of you. That's the context. Luke 9, verses 23 through 26. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we're gathered here this morning because we want to hear from you. We know this world isn't right, and in many ways we know that we aren't right. But we know that in Christ, things are made good. And we want to understand that better. We want to see more fully what this call upon our lives truly means so that we can follow after Christ with great power and grace. Heavenly Father, send your spirit to illuminate these words, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but let me ask you. Does the Bible in any way call you to be Christ-like? I think if we were to raise our hands, pretty much everyone here in this room would raise their hand. It's true. The Bible does call us to be Christ-like. Now, the disconnect comes, though, when we try to decipher, decipher what the Bible says about being Christ-like especially in light of Jesus' words before us in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and and follow me. The daunting task that Jesus wants all of his disciples to understand is that the call of Christ is an invitation to die to oneself. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously stated, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How does that sound to you? I'm afraid it's not what most of us want to hear, right? We all agree that Christ's likeness um, is what we're called to. But when we see that Christ's likeness means a cross for me and you as well, we begin to kind of squirm in our seats, don't we? See, we want some of the benefits that Christ brings, but we really don't want to hear any of his demands. We would like to think that Jesus came to help us live our same lives, but just make them a little bit more meaningful or interesting. Philip Ryken notes, he says, listen to this, he says, we said we wanted to follow Jesus But what we really meant was that we would follow him as long as he was going more or less the way we were planning to go. Instead of giving up the life that we had, we wanted to find a way to add Jesus to it. I don't know about you, but those are convicting words, are they not? So may our time this morning be fruitful. May we sit under Jesus' words and let him correct us and direct us and then give us his grace. This morning we're going to devote our time to this precious truth. When Christ saves you, he doesn't merely save you from your sinful past. He saves you for a new life now. And this new life has a shape to it. You were saved for a cruciform life. That is a life formed and, and shaped by the cross. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at it in three aspects. We're going to look at the demand, then the stakes, and then the circumstances. First, the demand. We see it in verse 23. Look at it. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, tape his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus gave his terms of discipleship to all, and he said, if anyone. Jesus is saying there are no exceptions. There is no other way to follow me. And so Riken writes this. He says, a life of sacrifice and self-denial 
It's not just for super Christians who share the gospel door to door, travel to dangerous missions field. This life is for anyone and everyone who wants to be his disciple. Once again, that's challenging. Jesus uses three verbs in verse 23 to to describe the demand of the cruciform life. Deny, take up, and follow. First, deny. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. And you know, this this is not a welcome word in our society, is it? Francis Schaeffer, that great philosopher and Christian leader um, who lived in the the last century, he wrote these words almost 50 years ago, but they are still so true today. Listen to what he says. He says, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of a real no is avoided as much as possible. And so when we were surrounded by this sort of mentality, here's the reality, and suddenly to be told that in this Christian life there is to be this strong aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. Schaefer is saying that in our society at large, it rejects the idea of saying no to any impulses. If it feels good, do it. If you think you deserve it, well, you do, so get it. Now, we must come to see that the demand of Jesus to deny herself is much more than simply the denial of certain things, right? I mean, we can all deny ourselves an expensive vacation so long as we know we're saving the money so we can buy a new car, Right? We can deny and still serve ourselves. No, to deny yourself means the rejection of a life based on self-interest, of self-fulfillment. And it means an acceptance of a life that seeks to fulfill the will and the teaching of Christ. Now, in agreeing with Jesus that we are to deny ourselves, guess what? We're simply following his example are we not? And becoming human, the Son of God left glory in heaven and entered into our sin-filled world. In doing so, he denied himself the pleasures of heaven. And by living a perfect life that you and I should have lived, he denied himself the pleasures of sin. And he denied himself protection from physical pain and emotional pain. On the cross, Jesus cried out with agonizing pain of soul, saying, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? That is the cross that Jesus bore. You and I cannot carry his cross. His cross was that of a perfectly righteous Son of God, dying for our sins, that we may have peace with God. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves in a very similar way that he denied himself. And so it means for us that we, that, that we say no to the self-indulgent comforts of this world. That we say no to living anymore for our own little kingdoms. And we say no to things that waste our time or waste our money. And you know what? It even means we say no to the good things on earth that aren't sinful so that we can pursue the greater things of the kingdom of heaven. I think that's where most of us get caught this morning. We're pursuing good things, but they're not the greater things. 
that God would call us to do. My friends, in some way, I wish this weren't true. I wish that Mark Middlecoff could hold on to his own life and follow Jesus where he wants me to go at the same time. But it's just not possible. Let me ask you, what are some things in your present life that that Jesus is calling you to deny? Where have you been walking? Or maybe it's just in general, you just need to give up that pattern of living for self and not for Christ. What is it? I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. Think about that. And as as we come to the Lord's table here in a little bit, bring that to the table. Confess it, repent of it, and allow God to give you his grace. The second part of the demand is in the words, take up his cross daily. Now, this doesn't mean you're just to go out and become a martyr, right? Looking for an opportunity here to give my life. Um, But it's true that for many Christians in parts of our world today, this is a real present reality. Now, to hear Jesus say, take up your cross, check this out. It would have Pierce the ears of those first listeners. Today we wear crosses around our neck. We have crosses on buildings, you know, crosses on t-shirts and stuff. But the cross was repulsive to the first century people. The image derives the Roman custom of forcing a condemned person to, to carry the crossbar to the place of execution. The crossbar, not the entire cross, but, but that horizontal beam that, that one's arms would be nailed into. They were forced to carry that to the place in which they were to be executed. And so the picture implies that one walking under the weight of the cross, check this out, lives knowing that life in this world is already finished for them. It's over. What an image to have in the forefront of your mind is Jesus' words come to you right now afresh. Christian, the life of pursuing your own glory in this world is finished for you. Can you embrace that? Now, there's grace here, my friend. Did you notice that Jesus said that this is to be done daily? Oh, he's such a good shepherd for our souls. He knows our frames. He knows our weaknesses. He knows we pledge fidelity to him one day, but the next we waver. This is why only Jesus' cross can save us. We are saved by his grace alone through his cross alone. But our taking up of our crosses daily is, is a response to his daily love and grace and mercy that he pours out to his people. We must always remember this. The third verb is follow. The verb follow is in the present imperative sense. Imperatives are commands, go and do. The present tense means it's a continual. We're to begin following Christ and keep following after him. Now, it seems obvious, but Jesus says we are to follow him. (laughs) And if we follow Jesus, where is it? That he leads us? I think the same place as he went. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Simple as that. Christian, this is to be your life's burning passion. 
We are to live the cruciform life so that as we follow Christ, the lost are found and saved through his gospel. This is what we're called to do. There is no other passion in our lives above this. The Christian life can't be described in more simple terms. Christ has given us new life in him so that we may follow him, so that those who don't know Christ can come to know him as we know him too. In other words, the people he died for, we now live for. Do you now see that Christ's call upon your life is so demanding? There's much at stake. We must take up our crosses and follow him daily. We are the, alone are the means by which this hurting world comes to know the love of a forgiving Heavenly Father. Now, let's not miss out on this last point before we move on. This morning we must know, yes, following Christ is costly, it must be. But what is it that you get when you follow Christ? Him. When you follow Christ, you get him. Wherever you are, wherever he leads you, he's there. There is great grace in this call. The cruciform life doesn't leave you alone. It brings you into the presence of your Savior as he leads you, wherever he would lead you. Though you die to yourself, he gives you himself. Though you suffer under the weight of the cross, he is there to bear it with you. This is a call to experience his grace, is it not? There are people who miss out, countless Christians who miss out on the presence of Christ because they're not going where he's calling them to go. May this not be us. That's the demand, not for the stakes. You know, when I hear the word stakes, I think of uh, high stakes poker matches. I love that too. Um, as a kid, my brother and I used to play poker with some neighborhood friends and it definitely wasn't high stakes poker at most times it's nickel ante maybe a dime ante if someone got crazy they'd throw in a quarter the average pot was like three bucks you know it really wasn't a lot but to us it seemed like a lot now it's one thing to gamble and put a week's wages on the line but here in verse 24 and 25, Jesus says the stakes are the highest imaginable. He says our eternal lives are on the line. Follow after Christ in our cruciform life and experience eternal life or reject his offer and experience eternal loss of life. There can be no higher stakes. In verse 24, Jesus presents a paradox. Do you see that? It's really quite astounding. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The paradox is this. To save your life is to actually lose it, but to lose your life for Jesus is to save it. What does Jesus mean? Well, countless people walk this earth think that, thinking that they're saving their lives in the sense that they remain in charge. They dictate where they're going and what they're doing. This is my life. I will live it my way. And so many people organize their lives around their ambitions and their entertainments. 
And whatever they can get out of life, guess what? They keep it pretty much to themselves. This, this person will build a life that their selfish heart desires. And they will work hard, guess what? To protect this life from suffering any loss. Jesus says, how ironic, how paradoxical, how foolish of you. For whoever would save his life will lose it. The imagery of loss here is of complete loss, like a ship going down at sea. But he's not referring so much to our physical lives, more so our spiritual lives. And not just now, but forever. The paradox continues when Jesus says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what does Jesus mean by losing your life? Well, it's what he says in verse 23. How do you lose your life for Christ's sake? By denying oneself, taking up one's cross daily and following Christ. When you die to your old self, that short-sighted, self-interested, excuse-making, blame-shifting self, and you come alive in Christ, then you find that just as Jesus' cross led to death and resurrection, so too your cross leads to a death and a resurrection for yourself one day. Jesus' tomb is no longer, he's no longer in his tomb, it's empty. When he promised to rise on the third day, guess what he did? And when he promised all those who believed in him that they too will one day rise because he is the resurrection and the life, guess what? We will one day rise too. Jesus continues to show us the stakes in verse 25. I don't know if anybody here is an accountant or a bookkeeper or you know, maybe take an entry-level class, but he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul, some other translations say. In other words, Jesus is saying if, okay, it's a big if. If you could gain the whole world, if you could have it all, Jesus says, in the end, it really wouldn't profit you. Why? Listen closely. Why is this true? It's true because none of the gains that you grab here on earth that are apart from Christ and his will for you will, in, in, the, in the end, matter at all when your eternal soul is lost or forfeited. I may be saying, I've, I've heard a lot of different arguments. I used to be on this other end, uh, you know, uh, but I don't want the entire world, uh, so I'm okay, right? Um, that's not Jesus' point. His point is, if you could gain the whole world, and by the way, you're not going to, it wouldn't be worth it. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I really don't want to live forever. I'm not going to address that. I, could, I think I could sit down and talk with you and at some point get you to realize, actually, you kind of do want to live forever. But let's just listen to Jesus' words. Jesus is saying, if you say you don't want to live forever, well, you really don't have much choice in the matter. God made us in his image with an eternal soul. Right now, your soul is in a weak and fragile body that will one day die, but your soul will, will either live on in a state of redeemed bodily glory with ever increasing happiness, or your soul will live on in a state of condemned bodily ruin with ever-increasing torment. The stakes are high. People try to ignore Jesus' words. Perhaps you're doing that right now. Or they downplay them. But if we're to take Jesus seriously, and he wants us to, be, he wants us to take him serious, he's not a madman. If we take him serious, we must see that the stakes are high. We must come to see that trying to save my old life will in the end lead to eternal loss. But if I lose my life 
for Christ's sake, in the end it will be saved. So we study the demand of the cruciform life and the stakes, not for the consequences. There's basically a twofold consequence here. Either tragedy or triumph. There's either tragedy of eternal dishonor or the triumph of eternal glory. We see this in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes, he's coming in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Wow, there's a lot going on there. There's angels coming too. All right. Um, To be ashamed is another way of saying to disown him. To those who disown Christ in this lifetime, that is, they refuse to be identified with him. And so they they are in this way ashamed of him. Jesus says that, guess what? He will be ashamed of them. He will disown them when he returns as the Son of Man in glory. Son of Man is a title. It's kind of an apocalyptic, uh, eschatological title. Look that one up. Go ahead. Feel free. Get your phone out. Eschatological. Jesus, when he refers to himself this way, he's seeing um, who he is going to be for this world in the future after he rises in glory. Verse 26, Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of Jesus the man today and all that he said in order to bring you into relationship with God, then on that day, Jesus the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. And you'll have no part in his glorious age to come. As C.S. Lewis described it, hell is a place where those who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. We're made for eternity. We're made for it. A life of pridefully rejecting Jesus, laughing at those who talk of Christ and one's need of him, mocking his words, saying that his words don't apply to you. A lifetime of this has consequences. The consequences, eternal dishonor. The one who came to save you, save you saying no to you on that day. But for those to whom Jesus awakens to new life, here's where you can start smiling, folks. Those who, by God's grace, are not ashamed of Jesus and his words, there is a a coming eternal glory. And the thing about this glory is it makes all of the cross-bearing worth it. Paul said if there is no resurrection, Christians are the biggest fools who've ever lived. In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. Listen. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Glory. 
That is what Jesus wants his followers to understand. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that this morning. I'm surrounded by so much temptation to just give my life to earthly things that really don't matter in the long run. He wants his followers to understand that the Son of Man is coming in his glory so that we can have our minds focused on the coming glory of heaven as we live our cruciform lives. You know, I'm afraid most Christians don't spend much time thinking of heaven. I remember years ago I said I was going to preach this whole summer sermon series on heaven, and people were like going, really, there's that that much to talk about? (laughs) We did it. It was great. All right. There's a great book, Heaven, by Randy Alcorn back there. I hope that last copy there is gone by the time we leave this morning. But it's a really, really good book. But most Christians don't think enough of heaven. They... And, I'm, and I lump myself into this, okay, guys? I'm, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself. Here's what we think. We think that the fullness of glory cannot come to surpass the morsels of glory that we gather right here and now. And so we struggle for tastes of earthly glory, and we end up finding ourselves far from Christ, who wants to lead us somewhere else. And so we must not forget that the glory to come far outweighs, check this out, not only our current sufferings, but our current glories. And so let us look to Christ, our Savior, as our example. What was on Jesus' mind as he suffered under the weight of the cross as it was coming closer and closer into his lives? The night before Jesus was crucified, read it in John 17, it's a high priestly prayer. He says this, these words, he says, and now, Father, Amazing words. Glorify me in your presence. Listen, with the glory I had with you before the world began. It's the glory to come that allowed Christ to carry his cross for us. My friends, it's the glory to come that allows us to live these cruciform lives. And so let our minds be fixed on Christ and the glory to come. Let us be mindful of the call of heaven that we may lose our lives here on earth. May we do so with great joy. These words of Jesus that we studied here this morning penetrated the life of a now famous Christian martyr named Jim Elliot. Some of you perhaps know his story. In the 1950s, he became a missionary to remote Indian tribes in the Amazon. Now, kids, it's not the website Amazon. There's actually a river (laughs) with fish in it, and people live on it, right? They get all kinds of good things from the Amazon. Anyway, that's not in my notes. Um, (laughs) He became a missionary to these tribes with a few other Christians in, in Ecuador, He denied himself, took his cross daily, and he followed Christ to that remote region where he shared Christ with all that he met, started schools and all kinds of amazing things. Later, he and four missionaries sought to reach a tribe that they called the Aka Indians. Turns out they had another name. All right, who would have known? The Akas were were headhunters. Can you imagine the conversation? Jim says, hey, guys, um, I got an idea. Uh, I was thinking with my head, maybe we go to the headhunters and talk to them. Sounds like a good prospect, right? How many of you would go and share the gospel with headhunters? 
It's a hard one. I don't know if I would. On January 8, 1956, Jim and his four fellow missionaries were ambushed in a riverbed by 10 Aka Indians and savagely murdered. But later his journal was found, and one entry stuck out. On October 28, 1949, you can look it up online, you can see the actual entry. Um, here's what he wrote. Here's what he wrote. Here's what he wrote. One of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven on earth. And that, that's not the one I want you to hear, but the next one. <laughs> Under that, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, thankfully, we don't have to become martyrs in order to gain this prize. There are far more many ways for us to lose our lives. The question is, are we losing our lives? Riken notes, we lose our lives by giving ourselves completely over to Jesus in faith. We lose them by living for others and not for ourselves. We lose them by showing kindness to strangers and compassion to children in distress. We lose them by giving people the gospel, even if they end up rejecting it and rejecting us. We lose our lives by giving sacrificial support to the ministry of God's word locally and internationally. And then he concludes by saying, and as we give our lives away by the grace of God, we end up saving them. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I think we all need to consider Jesus' words and be challenged by him. Perhaps you're here this morning, you realize for the first time that the cross of Christ actually is for you. Jesus lived and died for you so that you can experience forgiveness and mercy and welcome into his family. And you're wanting to give your life to Christ. But before you do, I'm not going to stop you, but let me say this. You need to count the cost. He's calling you to follow him. He's calling you to a cruciform life. But guess what? It is worth the cost. When you take up your cross and follow Christ, he is ever present with you, leading you with mercy and grace. Others here, you, you're rejoicing in this truth that we're looking at here this morning. You love Christ. You're committed to him. And by God's grace, you have been following after him. You can point to numerous things recently and over the years to where, where you live, you're living this cruciform life and you have suffered. And yet Christ has been with you all the way, right? For you, just remind yourself that, that, that Christ is the good shepherd. He is the one who leads you beside still waters. Rejoice that he has done that in your life. I think still others here profess to be followers of Christ, but as you look at your life lately, you have to admit that you haven't so much been following him, but merely seeking to add Jesus to your own hopes and dreams. Perhaps this means you really aren't a follower of Christ. You just think you are. I think your application this morning would be to count the cost, follow Christ, lose your life for him and for his sake, and you will save it. He will save you. Or perhaps you're a follower of Christ and you've just lost your way. My hope is that the Spirit of God may work on you and on me gently but firmly to correct us, 
so that we may hear afresh Jesus' words that all true followers of him live cruciform lives and that we welcome this. And as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, may we be humbled. May we remember that it's the good shepherd who cares for our souls. He knows our frailties. He knows that sheep often go astray. And he's pledged to go after any and all who do and bring them back into the fold. May we all be reminded that the good shepherd has laid down his life for us so that we now can deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow after him. God has saved you for a cruciform life. Let's pray. Father, it is kind of a hard topic. Uh, we can't just throw out some of Jesus' words and only accept others. But really, this is a word of grace to us. It's a warning. Um, and it's a high calling. We all want to live dynamic, powerful, uh, amazing lives on earth. And this call to follow you, Jesus, is just that, if we live but believe it. We pray that you would correct us where we need correcting, strengthen us where we need strengthening, and lead us on in your glory, we pray. Amen.